Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. It is great to be with you this morning. I almost said it's great to see you again, but you're not the same people who were here earlier today, were you? You're an all new group of people. I had the privilege of uh, going over to uh, uh, Sherman Park and sharing the word with them as well this morning and uh, had a great time of fellowship there. But uh, obviously the way everything is set up, there's not a whole lot of time to stand around and talk. So, uh, but I can do that after this service. So I'm looking forward to meeting some of you. As Pastor Tommy already shared, I've been here about six weeks. It's been really fun getting to know the pastors, the staff, everybody who's a part of Epicos Church, the elder board, and so on. And I am so excited about what I believe God has in store for Epicos Church. It really is neat to see what God is doing and the people that he's brought to be a part of the team. And that team includes you. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning in terms of how we can all get involved in the ministry that God has called us to. So I would just like you to remember to pray for, uh, for our staff, for wisdom, and for guidance, uh, even as we move forward this year. Well, we all know that the big day is almost here, right? Thursday, Thanksgiving. Everybody looking forward to Thanksgiving? No, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, Maybe you're not interested. The first Thanksgiving, they say, dates back to December 11th, 1621, when Governor Edward Winslow of the Plymouth Colony wrote a letter inviting colonists to enjoy a three-day feast, a three-day feast that would be shared by the Plymouth settlers and the local Wampanoag tribe. I know what some of you are thinking. When can we get back to that three-day feast rather than just simply one day to be able to do all of that? Not everyone celebrates this day the same way. As a matter of fact, there are some unusual traditions that have emerged over the years, kind of bizarre in some ways, but a tradition such as the presidential pardoning of the turkey. I've never quite understood what the turkey did that he needed to be pardoned, but apparently that dates back to 1940 and has historic significance to it. Some people take part in another family and friends activity known as turkey bowling. This tradition started in 1988 at Lucky's Grocery Store in Newport Beach, California, of course, where the bowling took place in the aisles of the grocery store. Now, some people enjoy cooking and eating something called a turducken. Anybody ever heard of a turducken? Anybody ever eats? Oh, okay, okay. Good, good response, good reviews. It's different, right? It's the, okay, all right. Well, it's a deboned chicken stuffed inside a deboned duck, which is then stuffed inside a deboned turkey. Now, I don't, I don't really know what that tastes like. I've never had that, but apparently for some people, that's really a tradition. And then, of course, there's Black Friday, the highly competitive shopping day after Thanksgiving that takes place every year, but as undergone some changes, I guess, in the last few years with COVID and 
also with online shopping, and plus some of the stores are now opening up on Thanksgiving Day, so it's kind of lessened the impact of that tradition. Then there's the things that we do at Thanksgiving because our parents did them when we were growing up. Perhaps you have adopted some of those as a part of your tradition and maybe added a few of your own. Thanksgiving for me as a child growing up on the south side of Chicago was always a family event and I can remember waiting for relatives that I normally only saw at weddings and funerals arrive for Thanksgiving to be able to enjoy that feast together and everybody brought something. I can remember standing in the kitchen doorway watching my dad carve the turkey and waiting for the sample that he would eventually give me. I'll never forget a day when I was about 16 when he asked if I would like to try carving the turkey. What an honor and a privilege that was. Almost cut my finger off in the process, but it was still a very, very good experience. And every Thanksgiving since, I think back to that moment when he did that. Other traditions in the home that have become a part of our family's Thanksgiving include things that may be part of yours. Sweet potato casseroles with marshmallows on top. Green bean and bacon casseroles. Some kind of jello with some kind of fruit inside of it. Pumpkin pie, apple pie, pecan pie, any kind of pie really works well on Thanksgiving. And one of the best parts of our tradition is leftovers. Uh, since everybody comes to our house, we have to cook enough turkey to make sure that we have leftovers because we really enjoy the sandwiches on Thanksgiving evening and on the day after Thanksgiving as well. That's part of our tradition. And most importantly, sharing thanks for God's many blessings throughout the previous year. Some of these traditions are being passed on to our children and grandchildren and they've already started adding some of their own. It is a time to celebrate. Traditions play an important part in our lives, and they enable us to connect with the past in a positive way. But not all traditions are positive. For believers living in Colossae during the time of the Apostle Paul, traditions that they grew up with or were a part of uh, as, a, as a result of the culture in which they live could be dangerous to their spiritual lives. And there's similar dangers that have encroached on our lives as well. Let's begin by reading Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 16. And let's stand uh, as we read God's word. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regards to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensual mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You may be seated. Well, once again, the passage begins with the word therefore. And as Pastor Lance reminded us a few weeks ago, when you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it is there for. So in order to do that, we have to go back to verse eight in chapter two. In verse eight, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. There's the framework from which this portion of the chapter emerges. He talks about taking, being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Now, the purpose of many of the traditions in Jewish law were to serve as pointers to what was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. The traditions pointed to future realities, but they were not the reality itself. So now that the reality has come in the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no need to continue practicing the very things designed to foretell the gospel. In fact, if they do continue, they could actually diminish their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. Now, these traditions basically fall into two categories. We can kind of develop that out of what Paul is saying here. The first category has to do with teachings. Second category are the practices. The teaching of Judaic tradition by prophets and false teachers as necessary to please God and gain his favor. We need to continue doing those things, they would say. And then there were the practices of Judaism as well as uh, of the Gentiles. Feasts, festivals, sacrifices, and so on that were creating issues in the early church. Do we do them? Do we not do them? Let's take a brief look at both of those. First of all, the prophets and false teachers in Jesus' day would include two categories, the Judaizing teachers and the Gentile philosophers. The Judaizing teachers of the law insist on following the law even after you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, which they weren't really sure was the Messiah. The Gentile philosophers focused their teaching on man without God. And this was practiced by the Greeks, the Romans, and many of the pagan religions. There was also the practice of syncretism, which is a fancy word describing the merging of pagan religious beliefs and practices with those of the early church. They involved things like mysticism, Paul says. In mysticism, they believed the practices of contemplation and self-surrender would enable you to access truth that's inaccessible to our human intellect. Then there's occultism, maybe something we're more familiar with. It's belief in and engagement with supernatural forces apart from God, not from God. Things like astrology still exist today, but when it exists not simply as a study of the planets, but as a religion, it involves worship of the universe and elements of the universe. 
Paul also identifies a group known as the Gnostics. Gnostics were a cult that believed in more than one God, so they accepted Jesus as one of their many gods, but not as the one true Son of God. Then, not only the prophets and false teachers, the traditional practices. These included various feasts and festivals based on Jewish ceremonial law with its multitude of regulations regarding sacrifices and holy days. When we get into our study in Exodus after the first of the year, you're going to see what a lot of those uh, really existed as part of the law. Some of the examples Paul gives are found in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these prohibition, things that are all that all perish, even as they're used. They involved food and drink, festivals to celebrate the new moon, and many other man-made practices. For the Jews, there was the continuation of following the Jewish ceremonial law. There was also asceticism, defined by Webster as the practice of strict self-denial as a measure of personal and especially spiritual disciplines. Now, This should not be confused with periodic fasting that Christians are encouraged to do in order to spend time in scripture and in prayer without the distraction of food or other things in our lives. He mentions them being puffed up without reason by their own sensuous mind. See, some had developed a a reputation of being heavenly-minded or supra-spiritual, which in and of itself lends to idolatry. Even the worship of angels, both Jewish and Gentile philosophers who advocated praying to angels instead of directly to God. And they justified that by saying it was an act of humility. I'm not worthy to talk to God. I must talk to angels and let angels talk to God. In the Jewish community, there was an element of angel worship as beings who received and delivered the word of God in the form of messages of God. As a matter of fact, angelic messengers are very much a part of the Old Testament and are even present in the narratives regarding the birth of Jesus. They played an important role, like all created things, they were not to be worshipped as equal to God. Why? because Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Some believed in visions that presumably revealed new truth, not yet revealed by God. They also took pride in their own wisdom, prompted by their own desires. Roman philosophers fell into this category, as did those who followed them religiously. Ultimately, these accusers who were trying to disqualify the Colossian believers as being true followers of Christ were not holding fast to Jesus as the head of the church. And Paul is emphasizing the importance importance of believers in Colossae to separate themselves from their accusers and from the traditions that those accusers were following. Now that could be painful for them especially in the early days of the New Testament church. It often meant separating families. It also meant separating people from their friends. Now, I realize that changing family traditions, even on Thanksgiving, can be dangerous, often creating a crisis between generations. 
such as no green bean casserole, are you kidding? What do you mean we can't watch a football game? A Christmas movie? A Hallmark Christmas movie? And could you imagine serving ham instead of turkey? You could be cut out of the will in some families for doing something like that. But you see, none of these are as severe as the crisis faced by the Colossian believers. Remember the account of Peter outside the temple, Acts chapter 3 and 4? A man who was lame was carried by friends who approached Peter and John and asked if they could give alms. Now, alms in those days meant either money or food, hoping to receive something from them. But Peter responds to the man, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they took the man by his hand and raised him up and immediately he began to walk and even dance. Of course, the Jewish officials were doing their best to deny and conceal the resurrection of Jesus. We're not happy with anybody exercising this kind of power. So they were arrested. When Peter and John appeared before the high priest and his family, they were asked, by what power or what name did you do this? Now, of course, their intent was to discredit them. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. <laughs> what an answer. <laughs> Solid, theological, very, very comprehensive answer. But Peter doesn't stop there. He wants to make sure that this was all about Jesus and not about them. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now you have to understand that the Jewish leaders had become so entangled by the laws and the ceremonies that had been designed to point to Messiah, to Jesus, the true cornerstone of the faith, that they missed who he really was. And so they crucified and buried him and then covered up his resurrection. Let me pause for a second. To me, this is one of the most poignant passages in the book of Acts. And it clearly illustrates what Paul is trying to teach to the Colossian believers. The Jewish leaders were so caught up in their traditions, which went way beyond the law given through Moses. And they tried so hard to cover up the fulfillment of prophecy concerning Christ and his resurrection from the power of death, the Messiah. They waited generations and centuries to be revealed. They were so caught up, they actually missed it when Jesus came. The Messiah had arrived, and they missed it. 
the fulfillment of the reality of what they believed and practiced occurred right there in Jerusalem. And they missed it, blinded by their own lies and traditions. That's what was happening in Colossae. And the sad truth of most of what often goes on in the name of religion today. People get so caught up in the doing, trying to please God so he will accept them into his family that they miss the simple truth. They miss the good news. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Which brings us to what I feel to be the three greatest challenges for the church then and for, to, for the church today as well. The big lie, the big question, and the big and critical answer. First of all, the big lie. What was the big lie? The big lie is simply, Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough. Any form of legalism that implies that salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone is not enough is false. And it creates doubt in the regenerating power of God through Jesus Christ and doubt in the reality of who Jesus really is, the Son of God, and doubt that faith is enough. And people think, I need to do more. I need to earn my salvation. And this is what was being taught and propagated among the people. But it's not true. So the false teachers who wanted to maintain loyalty to themselves created a spirit of doubt in people's minds so that they could maintain some kind of control over the people. Failing to admit that legalism has no place in our salvation, they continued to impose it upon the people. Paul says in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you, excluding you from the family of God, because you're not doing this or that. Verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you from the prize, the salvation that comes by faith. Those who criticize you for not observing the festivals, the new moon celebrations, and so on, they miss the fact that salvation comes by faith. That's the big lie. Jesus is not enough. Which brings us to the big question. Why? Why do you submit to human man-made false religious regulations? If you died to the elemental spirits of the world, which spring from the enemy, Satan, why do you still act like they're in control? What is your motivation? Why would you do that? Why would you go back to the traditions that entrapped you when you've been set free by your faith in the Son of God? Why would you do that? You see, self-made religion and asceticism may have the appearance of wisdom, but they're of no value when it comes to our faith. Where do they come from? Well, human precepts and teachings. Legalism to ceremonial law that presumes that Christ alone is not enough. Some of these teachings come from a document called the Mishnah. Uh, which is believed to be the first major written collection of Jewish oral traditions, 
known as the Oral Torah. And it's the first major work of literature written by the rabbis. And these teaches, teachings included prohibitions about what they shouldn't handle, what they shouldn't eat or taste, what they shouldn't, ta- what they shouldn't touch. And all of this was an unauthorized extension of the Old Testament law. That law includes things like Jewish festivals and dietary laws, pagan mysticism, self-flagellation, which is simply beating yourself, dietary restrictions, and even sexual freedom. In verse 17, Paul calls calls these practices and beliefs shadows. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Read that again. These are the shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There are many things in the Old Testament, including feasts and festivals and laws, that were merely shadow of the work that Jesus Christ would accomplish when he came. They point forward to a reality yet to come. I like what pastor and author Ray Steadman addresses, uh, writes in his book, Expository Studies in Colossians, with an interesting title, Things That Can Ruin Your Faith. He says, this is what Paul says is wrong with shadows. If you still place primary value on a shadow after the reality has come, you destroy your participation in the value of that reality. Now the reality here is Jesus. He's the center of all life and the source of excitement in the Christian experience. He's the one who accompanies us through life to comfort us in times of need and to strengthen us when we're being tempted. He is a place of refuge to run to when we are troubled or uncertain about life. He continues, to lose him is to lose all source of excitement and vitality in life. That's the danger in observing shadows. That's why this paragraph begins with the word, therefore. The previous section pointed out all that Christ is to us now. Thus Paul is saying, having therefore, having him therefore, do not let anybody spoil you by involving you in a mechanical performance that will cancel out the reality. In the life of a believer who trusts in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, these things have no value. They don't keep us from yielding to temptations. They don't, they don't protect us from uh, all the things that the enemy is trying to do, stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In fact, they can leave us more vulnerable to the things that shouldn't be a part of our life. They have the appearance of wisdom, but lead us down the dangerous path of saying things like, I need to do something. I need to do something. Yes, I know that Jesus has saved me from my sin, his sacrifice on the cross, I'm saved for all eternity, but I need to do something. Must be something more I can do. And what is that? Works-based salvation. I have to do something else to earn that salvation. Or we think things like, well, I don't know, that looks kind of interesting. It's not part of our faith tradition, but surely it won't hurt me. But you see, anything that defies truth can hurt us 
by separating us from God's word and from the leading of the Holy Spirit. Or sometimes we think, eh, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe a little non-faith-based meditation can open my mind to greater spirituality. But it's just the opposite. It can lead us away from the truth and from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In 1 Peter 5.8, we read, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. See, spiritual forces of darkness are real. They're real. They're nothing like those evil beings portrayed in movies. They're not mythical creatures with superhuman powers. They are the, they are the emissaries of the enemy, Satan. And they're powerful. And they're dangerous. And we're entering into that danger if we allow ourselves to be caught up in them. These shadows might attract us, but they do nothing to keep us from indulging the flesh, giving in to temptation, and could do just the opposite, making us more indulgent and even addicted to things that numb the mind to the realities of life and the power of God to redeem us. What we're searching for in our lives doesn't come out of the world. It comes out of the gospel. And as we spend more time with Jesus and as we grow in our faith in him, these other things will fall to the wayside. They shouldn't be a part of our lives. Which leads us to the big and critical answer. Spiritual growth comes only from God. Spiritual growth in the life of a Christian and the life of a believer comes only from God. In verse 19, he says, they were not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. That's what they were not doing. They needed to get back to the center of their faith, focused on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. All authority comes from him through his word and the Holy Spirit who indwells his people so that we might continue to grow in our faith and serve him until he returns to take us to our true home for all eternity. Believers are the body who submit to the head. Paul says, and are nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, growing with a growth, an internal growth that comes from God. Submitting to God is not only done individually, but together as a body of believers. We worship together. We praise God together. We study his word together. We pray together, fast together, serve together under the headship of Jesus Christ, that we might grow up into the body which is his. It's often forgotten in churches today that Christ is the head. I may serve as a lead pastor, but Christ is the head of the church. Our elders serve under the authority of Christ in providing biblical leadership to our churches, as do our campus pastors, our executive pastors, and all who serve in the ministries of the church. I love the fact that our staff all gathers together every Tuesday morning at 8.30 
to pray. Just to pray. I don't mean just. I mean in powerful prayer to God. It sets the tone for the week and all the things that we have to do during that week. It reminds us that we serve under the lordship of Jesus Christ, growing with the growth that only comes from God. The shadows we talked about are not to be confused with spiritual discipline. The spiritual disciplines enable us to grow strong in our faith, in our daily walk with the Lord. So readings God's word, prayer, memorizing scripture, journaling, meditation that focuses on scripture, stewardship, service, worship, fasting, practicing Sabbath, as Adam talked about last week. These are the disciplines that enable us to grow in our faith. At Epicos, we provide ways for you to engage in these disciplines individually and together as groups of believers. We have small groups designed for people to study God's word, to build one another up in our faith, to uphold each other in prayer and serve others as groups, providing service to our communities. Now, you can fill out a connections card or go on the website and find out how you can get a part, become a part of a small group. But these are the things that we need to invest ourselves so that the dangers that Paul has highlighted don't enter into our lives. These are daily disciplines to help you grow. And there are so many tools uh, that are available to help you. I use a devotional book called Mornings and Evenings by Charles Spurgeon. That book has been around for a long time, but it has never become irrelevant. His teachings from God's word on practical things in the daily life and his promptings to prayer uh, have been very valuable to me over the last several years. And uh, I use that every day. Now, there's many other devotional books out there that are available to you. And you also have the study guide that we provide to help you as we go through this book of Colossians. But there's many resources we need to be reading and to set our minds on, even as we begin the day. So what is our takeaway today? What direction can we take for our daily lives? Three things. First of all, let go. Let go of traditions that only shadow the reality of what Christ has done. Ask God to reveal to you any misplaced worship that you might have in your life. Do you worship people, possessions, your chosen profession, prestige, or even performance more than God? If so, you need to confess them to him and ask for his guidance to focus only on him and not these things. Let go. Take hold. Take hold of the truth of the gospel. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the truth. Grasp onto that truth. We need to be focused on the truth of God's word and the reality of the condition of the world that we live in and our role in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. He has conquered sin and he can forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and we can show others the way. Take hold. And finally, walk daily. Walk daily in prayer, in the word of God, 
in the fellowship of other believers. Because once a week is not enough. Walk daily and never, ever, ever forget. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all I need. Father, we thank you for reminding us of this truth that Paul has, bring, has brought to the believers at the church in Colossae and apply to us just as much today. Father, help us not to focus on distractions that may seem attractive, but actually divert us from the truth of your word and from the guidance of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Help us to, to truly let go of these kinds of traditions and practices. Help us to take hold of the truth of the gospel and help us to grow as we walk daily in prayer and in your word and in the fellowship of each other. And we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.